A few weeks ago, we began a series here at Calvary, which we've entitled The Battle for Truth. And in the course of this series, we have been studying the lie. It's not just a lie, it's the lie. The lie mentioned in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. It's a very specific satanic lie that the Bible speaks of that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's the very lie that Satan used against the first couple. It's a lie that's going to be used again by the Antichrist, who will be possessed by the devil himself, and he will use it to deceive the whole world into believing all those who would not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, all those that, as Paul put it, would not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved, will be deceived into believing the satanic gospel of the Antichrist. How does this affect us? Well, the Bible says the mystery of iniquity or lawlessness is already at work. It's already at work. Satan is already preparing the human race to receive the Antichrist by working hard to spread the lie throughout this world. He has for a long time. This is nothing new. The lie started in the Garden of Eden. It's been growing and developing throughout the last 6,000 years, and as we liken it to a gigantic tree now that has spread its branches and all across the entire world, the world is ripe to begin to eat its forbidden fruit that the Antichrist will present when he comes. However, the devil has also been hard at work in the church, infiltrating our ranks little by little with the lie as we have lowered our guard and have kind of welcomed in this Trojan horse. Dave Hunt, Christian author and apologist, said this, and I quote, Christianity may well be facing the greatest challenge in its history, a series of powerful and growing seductions that are subtly changing biblical interpretations and undermining the faith of millions of people. Most Christians are scarcely aware of what is happening, and much less do they understand the issues involved. The seduction is surprisingly easy. It does not take place as an obvious frontal assault from rival religious beliefs. That would be vigorously resisted. Instead, it comes to some Christians in the guise of faith-producing techniques for gaining spiritual power and experiencing miracles, and do others as self-improvement psychologies for fully realizing human potential that are seen as scientific aids to successful Christian living, or it may take other forms. Even the leading cult watchers have generally failed to recognize the Trojan horse that has penetrated both the church and their own ranks and is seducing from within. Chuck Colson, another Christian author, said, and I'm quoting, I have spoken of the frontal assaults and the sneak attacks. There is something worse. The enemy is in our midst. He has so infiltrated our camp that many simply no longer can tell an enemy from a friend or truth from heresy. Now you say, well, what, what are they talking about? What are these men referring to? Well, George Barna, who is a Christian research uh, expert, he, uh, he has an organization that um, studies uh, trends in the church, and they take polls among professing Christians to find out what they believe and where they're coming from on certain issues, and then every year produces a, a, a state-of-the-church report. He said this, and I quote, Over the past 20 years, 
we have seen the nation's theological views slowly become less aligned with the Bible. Americans still revere the Bible and like to think of themselves as Bible-believing people, but the evidence suggests otherwise. Christians have increasingly been adopting spiritual views that come from Islam, Wicca, secular humanism, the Eastern religions, and other sources. Because we remain a largely Bible illiterate society, few are alarmed or even aware of the slide towards syncretism, which is a belief system that blindly combines beliefs from many different faith perspectives, unquote. It's what some have called salad bar spirituality. You know how you can go to some of these salad bars at some of these restaurants, and, and the reason we like them is because we can pick and choose whatever we want. And people have kind of adopted that mentality in the church. In other words, they have kind of developed a kind of mix-and-match faith. They take a little bit from Christianity, a little bit from Eastern mysticism, a little bit over here, a little bit over there, and they combine it all together, and they come up with a belief system that's according to their own liking. And many don't see a problem with this. But that is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And yet they still give the Bible lip service. They still revere it. They still respect it. But they don't realize they have fallen into syncretism. And because of it, we need to sound the alarm to call the people of God to action before it's too late. That's what I'm hoping to accomplish through this series. And that's why in particular I've called this message this morning an urgent call to battle. An urgent call to battle. Actually, this call to battle is nothing new. The whole book of Jude is nothing less than that very thing. Turn to Jude, if you will. The little book right before Revelation that often gets overlooked. But Jude has some very important things to say. And in verse 3, Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The word contend in verse 3 is, the, is a Greek word that means to agonize, to struggle against. The word earnestly is added to convey intensive force. If we put the two words together and paraphrase, here's what Jude is saying. Here's what he's admonishing all true believers. He's saying, look, all true believers, you need to earnestly struggle, fight against and agonize as when in hand-to-hand -hand combat with a mortal enemy against false doctrine and maintaining the purity of the faith. That's kind of the idea. He's calling us to battle. He's saying, look, I wrote to you about our common salvation. We're all family of, the family of God, but I just felt compelled in my spirit, given what is going on, that you contend earnestly, not for faith, but the faith, the gospel and the body of truth that comes from the word of God, especially the New Testament. You see, two years prior to Jude's admonition, Peter in his second epistle also warned us that false teachers were coming. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Peter said, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, he said, but there were also false prophets among the people, among God's people in the Old Testament, 
even as there will be false teachers among you, God's people in the New Testament or the church, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, damning heresies, teachings that will damn a person to hell if embraced, even denying the Lord who bought them and will bring on themselves swift destruction, these false teachers. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth is going to be blasphemed. So Peter warned, there shall be false teachers who will come into the church. They will bring destructive heresies. Then two years later, Jude writes and says, they're here. Verse 4, he says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Why they crept in unnoticed is a mystery. Because Peter warned the church. Paul warned the church. John warned the church. Jesus warned the church. Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How these people sneak into the church unnoticed is beyond me. Unless a church is not teaching the truth. The only way the devil can infiltrate a church and move about unnoticed in the form of false teachers and all is if that church is not really teaching the truth. If you know the truth, you'll be able to spot the heresies when they come and the heretics. But they've crept in unnoticed, Jude says, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these false teachers so devastated the church in the 25 years that followed from Jude's writing that by, before the first century closed, the church was so polluted and so messed up with false doctrine that Jesus Christ sent seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And, of course, there were churches beyond that that were messed up as well, but these kind of represent a composite of churches everywhere. And to five of those churches, the Lord wrote to condemn and correct the false doctrine that it infiltrated into and corrupted their churches. I believe if we don't follow Jude's admonition, if we don't contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints, we're not going to have it for very much longer. If we in America think that our religious freedoms can't be taken away, if we think that the church in America is going to continue on the way it's been going for the last 200 years, that we're going to be able to come and meet openly and have Bible studies whenever we want, wherever we want, and, and openly praise God and all, if we think that those freedoms cannot be taken from us, we had better think again. They can be, and they will be, if the people of God don't start standing up for the truth. And this goes in every area of your life, to the people that you elect to be your government uh, officials, to where you shop at Christmas time. And I'm talking about the people that are taking Christ out of Christmas. In fact, taking Christmas out of the holiday, just saying holiday trees, holiday this. I mean, it's a lot of things, right? Some little, some big. But we're facing a massive attack against the faith from without, but also from within. And if we don't contend for the faith as Jude admonished us, I'm not sure we're going to have it for very much longer. You say, 
That's ridiculous. Well, you know, Jesus says something that's always haunted me. Out of Luke 18, verse 8, he said, when the Son of Man comes, when he returns, will he really find faith on the earth? That's a very interesting statement. He said, well, why would the Lord even say that? Well, I think in part, it has to do with what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Where Paul said, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, the day of God's wrath, the day of God's judgment, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Paul is telling us that the Antichrist will not be revealed and the judgment of God will not be poured out upon this earth until the falling away comes first. Falling away is the Greek word apostasia. It's where we get the word apostasy from. And it means a departing from the faith, a defection. And notice, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, Paul calls it the falling away. The Antichrist will not be revealed until the falling away comes first. People have fallen away from the faith for centuries. But Paul is talking about something different. He's talking about a mass exodus, a wholesale defection from the faith. Something unprecedented in the history of the church that will set the stage for the unveiling of the Antichrist. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church, Jesus said, unless the church stops being the light that God has called us to be. If the church stops embracing the truth, stops standing for truth and fighting for truth and contending for the truth, for the faith, that opens the door for the devil. And that's what's going to happen. An apostate is somebody who turns away from, the, from and abandons the faith. Now, some differ as to what an apostate really is, but let me tell you what I think an apostate is. I believe an apostate is somebody who claims to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who has never really made a genuine commitment to Jesus Christ. And eventually they turn away from the faith. And we've talked about this many times. The church is full of these counterfeit Christians, these phony disciples. Jesus said they were tares among the wheat. Jude says they're like cancerous sores on the body of Christ. And I believe that these counterfeit Christians, these apostates, are the ones primarily in view in 2 Thessalonians 2. However, because the church is so undiscerning today, because the truth is not being taught as it should in churches across America, you have so many Christians who are biblically illiterate, who are totally undiscerning, that they're also going to be swept away with this heresy and are already being swept away. That's why Paul told Timothy... The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, the last days, the times prior to Christ's return, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The word doctrine means teaching. Remember I said several weeks ago that demons are teachers? And they will use all kinds of people, false prophets, the Shirley MacLaine's and and, and the movie stars, and, and the David Koresh's, and, and anybody that is willing to be a channel through which they can bring the false teachings through, they will use that person. 
But Paul says that in the last days, some will be, depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. What are these doctrines of demons? They are the lie. It's the lie that has crept into the church. The lie that started in the Garden of Eden. That's branched out throughout the whole world in, in Hinduism and Mormonism. And as we said last week, Scientology and, 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 and the New Age movement and other things. It's also come into the church. It's important to understand that even though the Word of God warns us that just prior to the unveiling of the Antichrist and the ultimate return of Jesus Christ to the earth, there was going to come a great falling away from the faith. That's true, but listen to me. This doesn't mean that all these people would fall away from the church. See, that's the problem. That's what we have to understand. If they would turn their back on the faith and leave the church and become Mormons or New Agers, you know, well, at least we know where they stand. It's easy to fight an enemy that's outside your ranks. But when the enemy is infiltrated into your ranks or the deception is, is embraced, has gotten a hold of some true Christians and they're espousing it, it's very difficult to fight the enemy within. And we see today more and more pastors and teachers and churchgoers who are departing from the faith and yet staying in the local church while they give heed to deceiving spirits and embrace Christianized doctrines of demons all in the name of Jesus Christ and biblical Christianity. That's why this thing is so pernicious. That's why it's so pervasive. And that's why it is gonna, it's going to really take the church. If we don't stand up right now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy us. Jude says, I, I wrote to you about our common salvation. We're not going to have a common salvation anymore if we don't stand up for the truth because we're not going to recognize Christianity in a few years if we don't do something right now to make sure we get back to the basics and get back to what God has called us to do and to believe and stand up for the truth. It's just not going to happen. We're going to be in serious trouble. And so because of it, this, these are serious times. Serious times call for serious measures. And when it comes to exposing doctrinal error that has entered into the church, it becomes necessary to name names and to quote leaders in the church who have embraced and are promoting these false teachings. Now, I know, as soon as you talk about naming names and, and so on, there are those who feel that this is divisive, and for the sake of unity in the church, we should never do this kind of thing. But that's, I think, one of the big problems in the church today. Making unity the most important issue, even if it means having unity and partnering with those who hold a false doctrine. Look, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I went to Catholic grade school. My wife went to Catholic high school. I understand what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And I know that the gospel of Rome is not the gospel of the Bible. Because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation only comes through the church. God has given to the church all the graces necessary for you, for a Catholic person to be saved. It's not just by faith in Christ, though. It's by faith in Christ, yes, plus going to Mass, keeping the sacraments, indulgences, and so on and so forth. And as you are faithful and you are in good standing with the church, then little installments of grace are given to you and they eventually build up to the point where you earn your salvation. It's salvation by faith plus works. That is a false gospel. That is not the gospel of the New Testament, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of your works, lest any should boast. 
And when Jesus was hung on the cross, and he, before he dismissed his spirit, bowing his head, he said, it is finished. It's a completed work. All I need to do is, by faith, reach out and receive it. It's a gift that God gives to me freely. I don't, you can't earn a gift. Either it's by works or it's by grace. And if by works, it's no grace. It's by grace that we are saved through our faith. It's a gift of God, not according to anything I do. And because of this, it just baffles me why evangelicals several years ago got together, very well-known evangelicals, guys that I know and love and read their books, got together with some Catholic leaders and forged a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together in the Third Millennium. And the document basically says, look, Evangelicals, stop evangelizing Roman Catholics. They're already saved. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's partner together in reaching the lost. Well, I'm glad that the person who brought me to the Lord didn't feel that way. I was a Roman Catholic, and I didn't have a clue. And that's not to put Catholics down. It's just to say that, look, the Catholic Church is not teaching the biblical gospel. It's a gospel of works and rituals and ceremonies. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how can we as evangelicals partner with Roman Catholics? We can't. We must reach out to them that they might be saved. But today, unity is everything. Well, let's just have unity with everybody then. Let's just partner with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims in reaching the world for God. We all believe in God, don't we? Obviously, we can't do that. Paul the Apostle said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they what? Agree. Paul the Apostle, the Apostle of Grace, had a lot to say about unity and love in the body of Christ but he still rebuked by name those promoting false doctrine. Again, he wrote to Timothy, who was a young pastor, and said, Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then he went on to say, but shun profane and idle babblings. What is that? False doctrine, false teaching. For they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like a cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is past, and they overthrow the faith of some. You know, when a Christian pastor or teacher names names, people get all up in arms. You name names. You, you can't do that. Well, why? Paul did it. You know, in the course of naming some names, let me just say this to you as we, this study progresses. Not all of the people I'm going to name, I I believe, are false prophets. Many of them love the Lord and are genuine Christians, but they've embraced some false teaching. I just want to give some correction, that's all. Some, I do believe, are false teachers and false shepherds. But the bottom line is the church must police its ranks by confronting and denouncing false doctrine whenever and wherever it is found if the body of Christ is going to remain healthy. Otherwise, Paul's admonition to Timothy 
to preach the word, convince, rebuke, exhort, instruct, correct, with all long-suffering and teaching, would be meaningless. If we're not to judge, if we're not to question if a teaching is really biblical, how can we correct people? How can we instruct them or even reprove if somebody has gotten off into false teaching? If we just accept everything that everyone says who is a leader in the church, and we don't challenge and we don't try to correct, we are not being faithful to what Paul admonished us to do. Look, unity is important. Absolutely. In fact, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus Christ in John 17 prayed to his Father. And among other things, he said, Father, I pray that they, my disciples, might be one with each other in unity. Even as you and I, Father, are in unity. But then he went on to say, but the unity that he was praying for was a unity that had to be based on truth. He said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's what Paul the Apostle called sound doctrine, which in the Greek simply means healthy teaching. Teaching from the word of God is healthy. It promotes growth. False doctrine is poison. It's unhealthy. And let me say this. If unhealthy teachings enter the body of Christ... It is the responsibility of all the members to mobilize and to purge it from the body like white blood cells, you know, mobilize to purge invading viruses from the human body. But if the human body, which, by the way, is in unity with all of its members, right? That's important. You can't have life in the human body if all the members are not working together in unity. But if the human body becomes incapable of purging itself of the diseases that have invaded it. Well, we all know it's going to grow weaker and weaker until it finally dies regardless of how unified it is. We all know what AIDS is and how it works. When AIDS invades the human body, the first thing it does is it attacks the body's immune system and shuts it down. And this leaves the body defenseless to invading diseases which eventually weaken and kill it. Listen to me. The body of Christ has given itself a spiritual case of AIDS. By neutralizing its defense against spiritual disease, false doctrine, you say, how so? By ignoring the command to test all things and to hold fast to that which is good. The Greek is examine vigorously all teaching, everything that enters into the church. Hold fast to what is of God, reject what is not. That's why Paul said, let two or three prophets prophesy, let the others judge. And that's why the Holy Spirit commended the Bereans in Acts 17.11, who were more noble than those in Thessalonica, because the Bereans received the word which Paul preached with an open heart, but went home and checked the scriptures daily to prove what Paul was teaching was really in the word. And if they were commended for doing that with the teaching of the great apostle Paul, how much more so should we be Bereans and check against the word of God with these guys on TV and radio are teaching, myself included. Today, however, whenever Christians try to speak out against false teachings and the teachers that have brought them into the church, they are denounced and called divisive. 
In fact, we hear the cry of those wanting to protect their leaders from correction. Maybe you've heard this. Touch not the Lord's anointed. And see, that's how the body of Christ has given itself the spiritual case of AIDS. By saying things like that, it has shut down our defense mechanism. We don't challenge anything anymore. We don't let two or three prophesy and the others judge. We don't test all things and hold fast to what is of God and is good. We're just embracing everything in the name of unity and Christian celebrity. Because that's what we have today, Christian celebrities. Because they are, have a big name and they have big um, crusades and things, whatever they say must be true. Even though Benny Hinn said that there's actually not three persons in the Trinity, there's nine. And that's just one statement that we'll talk about. This is flat-out heresy. Why is the church embracing people like this? It's wrong. We are not being loyal to our Savior. We're being more loyal to the celebrity in our church. And so they'll say, look, touch not the Lord's anointed. You can't question a man of God or a woman of God when they teach or they speak for God. Baloney. Let two or three prophesy. Let the others judge. But this touch not the Lord's anointed is interesting. You know, it, was, it comes out of 1 Samuel 24. And the background is this. David had been raised up by God to take Saul's place as king of Israel. But Saul wasn't ready to let go of the throne yet. And so Saul got his army together and he was pursuing David throughout Israel, the wilderness, and so on. Well, one day, he's down by En Gedi, this oasis in the wilderness. You know, not to be indelicate, he had to use the washroom. That's what the Bible says. He had to attend to himself. You got to go, you got to go. So he, you know, he, so he found a cave. And he's in there, you know, doing his thing. Well, it just so happens that David and his men were hiding in the recesses of that very cave. And one of David's men said, David. Lord has given him into your hand, your enemy. Rise up and smite him. I mean, you, you got a guy right where you want him, let's face it. <laughs> so David takes his knife out and he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe, which he had tossed to the side there, and then his heart smote him. And he said, no, 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 this is wrong. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to hurt or kill the Lord's anointed. So Saul gets done. He's oblivious to what's going on. Gets his robe, walks out of the cave. Here comes David behind him. And David said, my father Saul. And Saul turned around, shocked. Said, look, in my hand I have a piece of your robe. I could have killed you. And my men encouraged me to do so. But I would not touch the Lord's anointed. Now why do you listen to people who tell you that I'm out to hurt you? That's a lie. Why do you chase me like a partridge across the desert? I've done nothing wrong to you. And David did not touch the Lord's anointed, but he did rebuke the Lord's anointed. I'm not advocating physical violence against anybody. I'm just saying we need to speak out against false teaching. Even if a person loves the Lord and has a good heart, if they have fallen into error, let's lovingly correct them. Why is that wrong? It's biblical. I know that Peter was certainly the Lord's anointed, wasn't he? And yet Paul rebuked him to his face for, for a conduct unbecoming a Christian leader when Peter 
would hang out with the Gentiles and eat with them, but then some big shot Jews came from Jerusalem, and Peter withdrew from the Gentiles and would only eat with the Jews. And Paul says, Peter, that's hypocrisy. And Peter was, Paul said, I withstood him to his face and told him it was hypocrisy. And Peter repented. Peter had a good heart, but it just goes to show us. Christian leaders are not infallible. And every once in a while, that we need to be we need to be corrected. Because we all make mistakes. And sometimes we mean well, but we get into things that maybe not are completely accurate. That's why it's so dangerous to stick your spiritual finger in your mouth and hold it up to the prevailing wind that's, that's blowing at the time because you can go to any Christian bookstore at any given time and get involved in books, bestsellers that are just off. But if you stay with the Word of God, you'll never go wrong, right? And my allegiance is not to the latest best-selling Christian author. It's to Jesus Christ. Paul said, look, follow me as a Christian leader as I do what? Follow Christ. That's always the criteria. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, that's not to diminish the, the uh, role and the benefit of godly teachers in the body of Christ. Because Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, talks about these that Jesus Christ has given to his church. And he says in verse 11, He himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastor-teachers. Same person in the Greek. Pastor-teacher. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, which is Christ. Listen to what Paul is saying. He is stressing the importance of unity and maturity as Christians, but a unity and a maturity that comes to the teaching of sound doctrine from the Word of God. You see it there? Till we all come to the unity of the faith. That's important. How is that brought about? By the knowledge of the Son of God. How is that accomplished? Through the teaching of the Word of God, right? And be careful, Paul said, because there is always going to be the devil attempting to infiltrate your church with every wind of doctrine by trick, the trickery of men and cutting craftiness of deceitful plotting. In other words, there's always going to be some wind of doctrine that's going to come blowing through your church. And you know the only way you're going to be able to not get carried away from it by it? How is a tree able to stand there when the winds are really blowing hard and, stay, and remain standing? Its roots go way down deep. And that's the key. Your roots have to go way down deep into the truths of God's word, and then you won't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. The reason why Christians are being tossed all over the place is because they aren't very deep in their walk. And their churches are not very deep. They might be thousands of people wide, but not very deep. Because churches today, for the most part, are not teaching the sound doctrines from the word of god it's passe or it doesn't promote growth let's deal with felt needs let's kind of keep it warm and fuzzy and so on and so forth and you know what you'll fill up a church like that but people will not their roots will not grow very deep 
And they will always be susceptible to winds of doctrine because they come blown through the church all the time. All the time. That's why Paul told Timothy, Timothy, you preach the word. In season, out of season, whether you feel like it or not, you preach the word. You convince, you reprove, you rebuke, you instruct, you correct with that word. But then he went on to say this, sobering words, for the time will come, folks, the time has come, when they will not endure sound doctrine. They, who? The world? Of course not. The world has never endured sound doctrine. He's talking about people in the church. The time will come when people in the church will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, fairy tales. Maybe you've heard the fairy tale about the frog that became a prince. I've got an even bigger one I'll tell you next week. And it's in the church, embraced by thousands of Christians across this country. But that's why Paul, with such passion, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, and this I pray, this is my prayer for you as a church, that your love may abound still more and more. We all need to grow in love, right? But that's not all. He went on to say that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Folks, love without discernment is dangerous. Discernment without love is destructive. We need both. We need to have love, but not a mushy, sentimental love that just embraces everybody in the name of unity, but a love that loves people, doesn't look the other way when they're sin, and certainly doesn't embrace those who are espousing false doctrine because we love them too much to let them continue in that error. We want to see them walking with God in truth. We need both. We need love that's rooted in the truth, but is also discerning because we have to police our ranks. We have to monitor what goes on. And it's not just the responsibility of the pastors and elders. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to, to, to know what false teaching looks like and to spot it and to bring it to the attention of the church before it can take hold on somebody. There's always somebody at the perimeter of the church who has just newly gotten saved that is, hasn't been grounded yet in the faith and, and is susceptible to false teaching. We have to be watching for their sake because the wolves will come in and they'll, they'll take those perimeter Christians and lead them astray. If we're not watching and guarding. So we need to have our love abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. But listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says. We bring this to a close. He said in chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I have known Christians that have been Christians for 20 years, and they still haven't gotten past the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. They ought to be teaching others by this time. It's all, it seems like they're always having to be taught the most basic 
fundamental, rudimentary principles of the faith. Why is that? Well, he goes on to tell us, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. You know what? It all depends how far we want to go with God. Some people have a very shallow, superficial approach to God and the things of God. They get a little taste of God. It's like a baby with milk. It's all they want. And so because of it, they're very immature. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have exercised their senses to discern both good and evil. Now, the writer has put his finger on one of the main problems today. Christians, if we can get them to come to church regularly, will come and hear the word, but won't do anything with the word. So they're hearers of the word, but not many people are actually applying or doing the word. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that that is a sure formula for immaturity. Because the only way we're going to grow in our Christian life is not just to hear the word, but to be doers of the word. And as we use the word and apply it, we get good, we, we, we learn how to handle it. Our discernment is increased because this kind of discernment comes by reason of use of the word. In other words, as we apply it and use it in our daily lives, we grow in our discernment of what is right and what is wrong. But it's like Mike Gendron, another Christian apologist, said, and I quote, without discernment, the 21st century church is headed for serious trouble. Because the enemies of the gospel are more shrewd and cunning than we are. What the body of Christ needs now are soldiers of the Lord who are committed to battle for truth. End quote. I totally agree with that. And again, that is why we must sound the alarm and call the people of God to battle before it's too late. Let me just close by saying this. You remember how I said earlier that before the first century had come to a close, false doctrine is so infiltrated into the church that many churches were just completely devastated by the false teaching that had been allowed to infiltrate into their ranks. And Jesus had to dictate seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. There were others, no doubt, but he chose those to represent all of them. And to one, the church of Sardis, he said this, sobering words that we need to really take note of. He said, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, which are about ready to die. The evangelical church in America has got a lot of things going for it still that hold on to, strengthen. But we're losing these things fast. Sardis, hang on to the good things before they die. Well, they didn't obey and the church eventually did die. In fact, all seven of those churches are not there today. They're gone. And it's a sobering warning to the rest of us. If we in America think that our religious freedoms can't be taken from us, that the church will never see persecution, that things are going to continue on as they have since our, our nation was founded, a nation of religious freedom and tolerance, and we come and we enjoy freedom and meeting openly, if we think that can never be taken away from us, we had better think again. It can. And I think it will if we don't stand up right now and fight for the truth. Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell should not prevail. I'm not worried about the direct frontal assaults against the church of God. What I'm worried about is what is infiltrated into our ranks. This is what we want to talk about starting next week. 
how the lie has made inroads into the church and what forms it has taken. Let me just end with one last quote from another Christian apologist, Abraham Kuyper. He said, and I quote, When principles that run against your deepest convictions begin to win the day, then battle is your calling. Peace becomes sin. You must, at the price of dearest peace, lay your convictions bare before friend and enemy with all the fire of your faith, end quote. That's the problem. How much fire is left in our faith? May God help us. We need that fire rekindled because the faith, as we know it, is slipping away. That's why Jude says you've got to fight for it. Otherwise, we won't have a common salvation to contend for. Well, it's my prayer that this church would care and that this church would stand up for truth and live the truth. And folks, it starts right where you live in the privacy of your own home because spiritual warfare, as we have said many times, is primarily a battle for control of your thinking. And every time you turn on the television and you watch certain things, the devil is waging war against your thinking. He is wearing down your convictions. He is planting inside your mind the seeds of defeat. The more you watch the things of the world and the less you spend in the Word of God, the weaker you're going to become. So if this battle call starts anywhere, it starts right in our homes with our devotional lives. Because how can we, as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, go out and win battles against the devil if in our own lives we are weak and sickly because we are not really standing up for the truth in our own homes. It starts there. May God help us to take it from there out into our places of business, our neighborhoods, where we stand up for the truth and be alive.